Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Ruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action Wisconsin. And welcome to another year, at least for me. I was off last week and uh, obviously we did not do a show the final week. So it's been a couple of weeks. It's good to be back here at the Battleground Wisconsin. And as always with Robert Craig, our Executive Director. Robert, uh, good to see you this morning. Good to have you back, Matt. Yeah, it's great to be back. You know, it, it was awesome. I got to go to New Orleans with my family, and uh, it's just one of my favorite cities to visit. And particularly this time of year, it is parade season, and uh, we were fortunate. We got 70s and sun, Robert, so I am feeling very rejuvenated. And I got to tell you, you know, I'm looking at this list of topics we have to talk about today. Uh, it's no rest here uh, in the start of 2023 for politics. Um, want to talk about a number of things today. Uh, f- the first thing we're going to start the show is talking about the, the absolutely historic state Supreme Court election that we have coming up. We did a forum last night, and we're going to talk about that. But we're also going to talk about a lot of stuff that's been happening here in the state, uh, both with the new legislature, but also news that broke um, around um, one of our Wisconsin election commissioners, uh, just basically outright admitting uh, there was a they were part of a very sophisticated effort to suppress the vote in Milwaukee, particularly among African-American and Latino communities. A uh, number of other things, including uh, we may even touch upon a couple of things at the federal level. But, Robert, I want to dive in and and really spend some time um, talking to you about the state Supreme Court race. And, and again, we record Thursday mornings. Um, last night, we had uh, just an outstanding forum. Uh, it was super tight. It included the progressive candidates that are running for state Supreme Court. Um, and, um, Robert, I'm going to give you the, the good fortune of seeing and testing you. Can you pronounce Janet's last name? Proteowitz? Did, did I, did I get that right? Protosayowitz. I think it is definitely one of the more challenging last names, but, um, we had Janet Protosayowitz and judge Everett Mitchell last night, um, Answering questions, um, some outstanding questions uh, that are extremely important in this in this race, and in particular as it relates to the Supreme Court. Robert, I want to get your immediate thoughts because uh, before well before we go any further, I will say we had Judge Everett Mitchell live, and we thank him for being able to make it live. Uh, uh, Judge Janet was unable to join us live, but we recorded her answering the exact same questions live. She uh, basically, so they, they dealt with the same questions in the same format. um, And then we put them together live last night. So Robert, I just want to get your immediate response to the event. um, And, uh, and also uh, just any thoughts you might have about, you know, again, this historic nature and why a forum and progressives really diving in to this primary is so important. Yeah, I think with this forum, uh, we're getting to a better place on judicial elections because let's not pretend these are nonpartisan elections, low money elections where 
simply the most qualified judges, you know, regardless of party or ideology, get elected. They, they, they've, been, they've been completely polarized and, and made into political affairs where you have political judges, where you know how th things are going to turn out by the business lobby and the right-wing conspiracy in Wisconsin was one of the, 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 the center places where our State Chamber of Commerce, Wisconsin Manufacturing Commerce, working with national business interests, decided to take over the court. And that's partly why we had the court we had during Act 10 and during the, the, the horrendous things that were done under Scott Walker, why we still have a court that would impose undemocratic maps. So the problem is to answer that, you can't just go back. You can't turn the clock back. So these become big money elections. They become a lot more like real elections. We did have a period, Matt, where a lot of judges just, it was like Supreme Court justices and their confirmation hearing, basically refused to answer questions. And we know the Trump appointed judges lied basically about, let's just call it, call it directly, Roe versus Wade. Um, in their answers in order to get confirmed. But we just had a lot of candidates that wouldn't take clear stands. I think uh, uh, Judge Protasewicz and Judge Mitchell have both moved towards sharing more, but also being very careful because they do need to be careful not to force themselves that to be have to recuse themselves in cases that uh, likely will be before them. And uh, unlike Justice Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas, who should have recused himself and is engaged in things that were contradictory with his wife, with the insurrection, with cases, uh, they obviously are real judges and would not feel right about uh, deciding a case that they had actually taken a public position on. Robert, I appreciate that framing because I that is important to understand. Um, I got, we used to barely sometimes get involved in judge races because it was so frustrating that they really would just not tell you anything. And, you know, and I must say I was taken aback last night at how candid I thought in the evolution of both of these uh, candidates, even though they took some very different positions on policy. And I want to hear next about some of the some of the interesting things they were both first of all very strong candidates i we've had some some people run for supreme court who you know they may be good judges but politicians or being able to articulate that maybe not their strength um, both of these uh candidates i thought certainly passed that test and demonstrated a real strong capacity to communicate to the public which i think matters a little bit more uh now uh, and also just candor about the reality of the situation and the partisan makeup of the court. Um, it was even referenced while certainly a desire to understand that it should always be done within the construct of the law and the Constitution. Uh, that is a huge evolution. Um, so thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. And I just say, look, I also. I'm the executive director of an organization that's having a Democratic endorsement process. You can watch this on Facebook Live. You can take the survey that will go to our board, which will make a decision based on criterion they've already considered. So it will we will try to be very clear and factual, uh, both about electability and about what a judge ought to stand for um, in this process. But I can't go and say, oh, this candidate's better than the other and then lead this process. So let me just say a couple things. I'd say strengths of both. Uh, look, Everett Mitchell, 
He's right to say that there's uh, he'd be the first African-American elected justice, and that's important, and that we, we need a lot more diversity. You can see it in his presentation, how his life experience uh, has him approach issues differently than, a, than, than the best intention, progressive white judge, okay? And then, uh, so there's, there's that. Uh, we know Lewis Butler was appointed by Governor Doyle, should have been reelected, and that he was taken out in a slime attack by Justice Gableman, who has shown how slimy he was in the fake election investigation, uh, you know, future MAGA. And so, and, and I'm still upset about that because Lewis Butler was a great justice. And so, uh, and so there, and, and also, Look, he legitimately has run a drug court that is a national model in Madison. And just so folks understand, drug courts are a central feature of decarceration, ending mass incarceration, because there are a whole lot of people in jail who don't need to be in jail. They're, they, they're addicted to drugs, okay? And if you approach this differently with a rehabilitation mindset rather than a throw-away-the-key mindset, you are saving lives, and you are also saving us a ton of resources, because it doesn't even in our interest to spend huge amounts of money to warehouse people who simply have 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 an addiction. And so he used to be complimented to that. I'll say with Ju Justice Protasewicz, uh, she reminds me a bit of Rebecca Dallet in the sense that she really does present very well. She really does make it very clear how she sees major issues and the law. And clearly, she would be a breath of fresh air on the court. I have to admit, because I need to study some more in order to advise, give information to our board. I need to dig. I don't know. I don't know enough about her legal career. There's nothing flashy in her judicial career. Like uh, Judge Mitchell has gotten national major articles written about how he's run the Madison Drug Court. So that's why I know about that. Well, look, I want to encourage our listeners to if you didn't attend last night and by the way there were well over 300 people on at all times um we had huh, seven eight hundred commitments uh it was and that doesn't include who was watching on facebook that's who came on live through the official um site so outstanding uh, the chat was just bu just buzzing all night uh, throughout the whole thing. Um, and so thank you to everyone who participated. And like Robert said, this is connected to our endorsement process. Um, there was a lot of time put in thought into the questions um, and the folks who were asking them. And uh, that information will go to the board, including your opinion. So please fill out the survey. We'll have links to both the Facebook Live, but also where you can go uh, fill out the survey. We want to hear from you. It's very important uh, what you're thinking, Robert. I, I just say one other thing. We ask very challenging questions. If you watch this, I think you'll be interested in the questions. They're not the standard questions. I, well, I'm impressed with both of them in the in their forthright answers and how interesting their answers were. They had to, and they admitted very clearly when they couldn't answer it directly, but gave you an answer that was responsive. Because I, I, over the years, we've just had most judges would not have been resp as responsive as either judge. So I'm very impressed with both candidates in terms of their forthrightness in this forum. You're, folks, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin or Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're talking about the state Supreme Court election. Again, the primary is the third Tuesday, February. 
the general will be the first Tuesday of April. It's just a historically important election. We've talked about it again. We were spent uh, the first segment just debriefing a little bit on the forum. Again, please listen to it and go fill out the survey. Let us know what you're thinking. We are going to be very involved in this race. Uh, there is no doubt about that. We are aggressively trying to raise resources to help expand out and build out a, a field communication program that includes volunteers, but also some paid staff to really make sure uh, we get and talk to as many voters as possible about this um, historically important election. We'll have a link to where you can go donate to our Supreme Court Action Fund. Really want to encourage you uh, to donate whatever you can. Uh, we have been getting donations uh, as small as a dollar uh, and as large as hundreds of dollars and really appreciate that. So please consider uh, supporting, especially if you're someone who, you know, you just can't, you can't physically get out on the doors, can't or won't. Uh, please support those financially who are uh, trying to do that work. So really appreciate anything you can do. Robert, I want to talk about the story that broke this week by Bruce Murphy, because I think it's fundamental to everything we talk about. Um, and it is essentially a Robert Spindell, who we have talked a lot about um, our listeners <laughs> know he's on the Wisconsin Election Commission. No, he is always been on the fringe and has been aligned with MAGA support. We talked about his being a fake elector, which should have been enough, quite frankly, to disqualify him from this position. But the news that came out this week, right, where he was just openly bragging um, to other Republicans about their successful strategy of basically suppressing the vote and you know, essentially lays out a fairly multi-pronged strategy, some that inc include, you know, pretty what you might call more traditional, um, you know, negative ads to suppress people's excitement, but just how it was part of a coordinated strategy that included actual voter suppression uh, and a strategy that they've been doing for over a decade. Robert, um, and again, shout out to Bruce Murphy for getting this out there. It is now, as of today, it's all over the mainstream media, including our um, the president of our organization, um, uh, who's also on the election commission calling for Spindells um, to resign. Robert? Yeah. Good for shouting out Bruce Murphy, former Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporter, has gone independent nonprofit uh, website called Urban Milwaukee, real reporter, uh, Bruce, and Bruce broke this and uh, did not come from the much larger, uh, you know, uh, daily newspaper core or the press services, just for example. Uh, so, look, we know about Swindell for a while. Remember, they he was on the election commission. They appointed him there. He's a fake elector. He actually took part in cases involving the insurrection when he was involved in it, part of the conspiracy. There are a lot of really good um, lawyers who think he actually should be prosecuted as a false elector, fake him and the others. It was fraud and done in secret and, in a, in, in, and with an attempt to fraud us of democracy. So what's fascinating is, and it's reminiscent of uh, some of the Walker voting reforms where they literally during the debate made it clear, like on, on early voting restrictions in the legislative debate, that their concern was too many black and brown people voting. 
And at the district court level, we were a lead plaintiff in a lawsuit on that. We actually won on those grounds. In other words, the district court judge, Judge Peterson, found that they had intent to suppress the vote of people of color because they vote more democratic. So uh, it's reminiscent of that. And of course, right-wing judges at federal appellate court level then overturned that and decided to ignore all the evidence, which is what right-wing judges who aren't real judges do. And so in this case, this man is reporting the great success and reduced turnout of African-Americans and, and, and Latinx folks in Milwaukee and laying out everything they did uh, and crediting it with that, including, uh, including things such as the offices they opened up in, uh, in central city neighborhoods, which they said encouraged people just not to vote at all because it muddied the issue, right? And, and that, I, I drive by one of those offices yeah. fairly regularly. It's it's always basically been empty. It was just a shell office on, uh, on North Avenue and MLK in Milwaukee. You hear mainstream media saying it's some sort of Republican effort to get their votes. Uh, Swindell says the quiet pet out loud. No, they just don't want them voting. And then ads that are 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 cynical biting ads that make that 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 put up so much misinformation about democrat candidates people will stay home tells you again the quiet out loud what those ads are really about and then all of their election volunteers both on the outside like the observers and the people who worked in the election who became a you know but became actually part of the uh, official city process all of this are elements of the strategy that successfully reduced African-American and Latinx turnout. So it's all there. It's amazing. Well, look, we have been tracking basic uh, you know, threat, the attack on democracy uh, for a number of years will continue to this. I mean, it's surprising that he would put this in writing. It's not surprising that he would be involved in this. We've been well aware of the strategy. And by the way, also shout out to to Block and their leaders for, you know, being very clear and calling this out and being like, look, you know, it's it's we've been saying this all along that this stuff is effective. It does work. It does suppress turnout. Um, it's one of many things. So uh, just stunning, though, to just hear the candor uh, that a guy like Spindel would use. Uh, and this, was, this, this, wasn't media. Bark, this wasn't bark talk, folks. This is a no. report back. He thinks that the state Republican Party will be happy with this report back. Well, they will He's be. Probably right. Exactly. <laughs> Come on. Except that it came out. <laughs> Well, you know, that little inconvenience. Robert, I want to um, spend some time chatting about this amazing transition period. This is one of my favorite periods because you go from where you compare what the campaign that we just came out of, where we were doused with all kinds of ads or what people were talking about or promising or saying they were going to do, and then what actually becomes the priorities. So I know, let's just say, and this is at the federal level and the state level, I'm going to pick a couple. I think it's worth talking about particularly some of the state ones, but you can choose which one. So I know we probably didn't hear Brian Stiles running on, I'm going to make it easier for the wealthy to you know, avoid taxes, paying their taxes. I'm going to make it easier to cheat 
That is one of the goals, but yet that is one of the first bills that the House leadership is supporting. And of course they didn't run on that. They may have run in right-wing media on some anti-IRS stuff related to Trump, but police, also Robert, here in Wisconsin, you know, you'd think that recreational pot, it's been, it's like legal everywhere around us. We're swimming in it. Um, It's in the air. Uh, It's being... It's helping close budget holes in numerous states <laughs> surrounding us. It is wildly popular, but no, that's not possible. But what is possible, Robert, is a tax cut, a massive tax cut for the wealthy. With <laughs> the wealthy, the wealthiest 3%, <laughs> where the rest of us get screwed, or or we cut services wildly, um, the flat tax which is being pushed relentlessly now in the state legislature. It's just, it, it's too much. It's too much. None of this shit <laughs> do they ever run on and say, but yet they ultimately, when they get to work, they get to work on behalf of the true masters of that party. And quite frankly, you know, they got their claws in both parties, but wealth. Remember, tax cuts for the people doing best in our society after a half century of massive income inequality, and these folks are doing great, and we need to give them more, right? This is the Republican agenda. They never run on it. That's why they come up with lies such as it's, what was it, 87,000 new IRS agents? Not true. Uh, That's going to focus on middle class and working class people? Not true. Just say it over and over again. So I'm sure Mr. Stiles ran on that. But it's a big lie, right? And that and it actually is what they say the policy is that does the opposite. Look this way, but when we do something else, bait and switch. And so also, by the way, I don't think any of them ran, Matt, on use the 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 the, the ridiculous debt ceiling vote, which is about <laughs> paying our bills, not about spending. Okay. You can stop the spending and appropriations level. Use the uh, threaten to bankrupt the US government and crash the world economy. Um, as leverage to make massive cuts in Medicare and Medicaid. And Democrats, be damn careful. They, MSNBC, are leaning into defense cuts. Well, guess what? They'll figure out how to meet the ante there and make the cuts even deeper in Social Security, Medicare, food stamps, everything else that that that, that working folks need. So I, I am not a fan of that messaging at all. Folks? One thing that is clear is you are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We're all over the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Check us out. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are very fortunate. We have a special guest. It is no stranger to the show, Tobita Chow. He is the director of Justices Global. Toby. Good to have you back. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. So, Toby, we we have had you on a number of times now. I think this is either the, I think this is the fourth time we've had you on, and it's been the last couple of years talking about a couple of things, uh, both what's been going on around the pandemic and what we've been doing in terms of uh, policy around uh, vaccinations. But the big other issue that we have been, you know, sounding the alarm bells about is this deepening and worsening anti-China attitude that is 
now being popularized politically, and it has been over the last couple of years, we've been talking about it with you, and really has come to fruition this week with the House committee that got bipartisan support to basically go after and really look deeply into China. Now they're saying the communist government of China. So Toby, we wanted to have you on to get your thoughts. First of all, just get your overall thoughts on, on this. We're of course, deeply concerned and, and um, it's super important to us because our Congressman Mike Gallagher is going to run and chair this thing and is um, been very much out there in the media. And so thank you, first of all, for joining us and, um, um, would love to hear your initial thoughts on this committee. I mean, my initial thoughts are that, um, I mean, look, uh, people around the world, no matter where we look like or where we call home, uh, most people around the world uh, want the same things, uh, you know, peace, prosperity, what's best for their families. Um, but we uh, have seen and are seeing uh, politicians, uh, both here in the U.S. and uh, in governments in other countries, uh, try to stoke fear against people in other countries and engage in this sort of scapegoating of foreign threats uh, in order to try to get and hold on to power. Uh, and at a fundamental level, I think that this is uh, what we're seeing uh, in the creation of this, uh, this House committee. What we need to be uh, uh, seeing in terms of international relations is for people uh, in the US and around the world to get together to reject division and demand uh, responsible and realistic solutions to share challenges like climate change. Uh, that's how we're going to ensure a better family, a better future for, for uh, people everywhere. Um, there are, of course, real uh, problems with uh, many of the policies of uh, the Chinese government. Uh, there are changes that uh, we need to make in the US-China economic relationship. Um, but uh, addressing these problems requires sober, responsible leadership. And uh, my concern is that this is not what we should expect uh, from today's Republican Party and from this committee that's uh, being created uh, uh, under Republican leadership. Robert? There are a couple strands uh, here. So I'm going to mention a couple of them, but then we'll start with just one of them because it, it will make you talk the whole segment if, I, if, you, if you answer all of them in, in a row. There's the whole question of a new Cold War. And we know, if you know historically, you know what that means. It, it, it eliminates progressive reform. It creates a military confrontational focus. It changed everything after the New Deal, uh, the rise of the first Cold War. And there are people who are saying that directly. This is going to be a Cold War. It's inevitable. Everything's changed. And military-industrial complex, all of that, there's that strand. Then there's this strand of inclusion and, and hatred and division in this country. And I want to start on that one, but also we relate it back to the Cold War one. And that is that unlike Russia, which is a white country, this is a non-white country, there is not a history of ethnic hatred related to Russian people, right? Um, and so there is the, the, the Chinese Exclusion Acts followed by a exclusion of all Asians for many, many decades in this country. Uh, and this country is always a political issue on the West that you had to be deny land ownership, citizenship to, to Asian Americans. And so you have that history and it just, you keep hearing from these folks 
that it's not related to that, that this is about the Chinese government, not the Chinese people. But you've had waves of anti-Asian hate and the way that the MAGA Trump and Trump and his MAGA people framed uh, the, uh, the COVID-19 epidemic also produced that. So you talk about that strand. You can't just say it's about the government, not China, and not create a lot of anti-Asian feeling and aimed a lot at a lot of people who are not Chinese, right? Beyond Chinese Americans. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> this is an essential um, aspect of this problem uh, in uh, this this problem of like uh, anti-China uh, politics and and scapegoating that we're seeing uh, uh, within U.S. politics. Uh, it is absolutely um, inseparable um, from racism. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Russell Jung, who uh, is this uh, uh, academic who co-founded the Stop API Hate uh, Project, um, has a quote that I think sums this up perfectly. Uh, he says that uh, U.S. foreign policy towards Asia is domestic policy towards Asians. Um, and what we have seen throughout history is uh, that when narratives of some foreign threat in Asia start getting hyped up, um, inevitably, uh, that is uh, absolutely tied up with racism. And I think in two ways. One is that it is, as we've seen, as we saw uh, in, in, in 2020, it can um, uh, feed into uh, uh, racist narratives, and and so that's why we've seen this uh, rise in in anti-Asian uh, hatred and violence. Um, but it also draws upon uh, pre-existing uh, racist narratives in order to make um, these narratives of of conflict between countries um, more more plausible. So, like one one way that we see that in some of these narratives about how China's a national security threat is you you see this uh, narrative at work, um, uh, a racist narrative of that that portrays all Chinese people as part of sort of like this collective hive mind. Uh, for Star Trek fans, I sort of compare it to the Borg uh, in, in Star Trek, uh, like many individuals, but actually working with one collective mind. Um, there's this uh, very powerful narrative that uh, portrays like all Chinese people is basically like that as if uh, uh, we're all just like one mass uh, under the perfect control of the Chinese Communist Party leadership. Uh, that makes it much easier to portray um, all Chinese people as part of this unified uh, threat uh, towards the United States. Um, so in a lot of the rhetoric that uh, we see, um, uh, about China's national security, but you can sort of see this this racist narrative at work. This makes me so angry because it's so transparent to me. Even if you li like, you read the stuff, the hyperventilating about TikTok and how they talk about TikTok versus Instagram or Facebook. I mean, TikTok's the fentanyl. Like, please. And just it's, so you it's all... just it, it, it and and it just shows the lies that this is about something substantive and isn't just about literally sparking a new cold war. It has the double whammy for the Republicans and nationalists and racists that it it it's China, right? Um, and Toby, you have yeah, just me, called me... this out. You have been. This is exactly what you've been talking about. Let me for two add one little on piece show. of info for Toby before you finish your question, man. Yeah. That is, 
Uh, the Republicans here in Wisconsin pushed for a ban of TikTok on all state computers, and our Democrat governor is now pursuing it. So I also want to make sure we don't miss that this is not just coming from MAGA Republicans. Oh. The part of the reason we're talking about it is there were tons of Democrats that supported it. I want to give a shout out to Mark Bocan and, and uh, Congresswoman uh, Gwen Moore. Uh, Gwen called it out. She's just like, look, we really need to have a working relationship with China. We already have existing committees. We have ways to, quote, deal with if there's legit threats and issues. And this is just completely suspicious. And by the way, that this would be right on the back heels of what we witnessed last week and what kind of con what kind of house this is going to be and who we're dealing with that the first thing you would do is come out and give them this bipartisan thing on something that is so transparently toxic and could be uh, it's just it 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 boggles my mind uh, and uh, it, what also angers me about this is these are the same actors that supported all the neoliberal free market, send all the jobs away, you know, it, and now they're suddenly concerned about all that and saying we need to diversify. It's just nonsense. Um, it's the same people who sold us uh, this whole stuff, all the, you know, the NAFTA, the China PTR. Now the turnaround and use this in a highly racist way to go after an entire uh, country and group of, uh, it's just, it, it angers me. Um, so Toby, I just, the hypocrisy seems so obvious to me. It just blows my mind that that many Democrats jumped on board. I'm just. And it looks like we're near the end of the segment. So we let Toby Henser on the other side. Toby, I'm going to, we're going to take a break. Uh, and uh, you can respond on the other side. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Toby, I'm still hyperventilating over here. Uh, yeah, I just, this all seems very transparent to me, but I just wanted to get your, your response to, to some of this stuff and, and particular Democrats' role and where we as progressives, which I think is an important part of the show, where should we be providing leadership and light and help in this situation? Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, uh, before the, the break, uh, we we're talking about TikTok. Um, I think uh, that's a good case in point of how uh, focusing everything on the scapegoat of China distracts from this systemic solutions that we really need. Um, yeah, there are concerns around TikTok about like data privacy. Uh, there are concerns about, you know, maybe there, uh, I think arguably the protections uh, for kids on the platform aren't strong enough. Um, okay, let's take that seriously. Uh, those are uh, issues on social media platforms across the board. And the way that this discourse plays out is by focusing all the attention on TikTok is it because it feeds into this China threat narrative um, that displaces uh, the conversation we need to have about systemic standards that bind these tech companies and social media companies across the board. Um, we need uh, it, it. It it just sets aside the conversation that we need to have about how U.S.-based social media platforms uh, like Facebook are. Uh, cooperating um, with uh, with the police, uh, with ICE, with government agencies, and like that. Um, uh, yes. The 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 the, the same 
politicians that want to bang the drum about the dangers of TikTok absolutely do not want to have that confrontation right. with the power of tech cor corporations within the U.S. Um, so that's how this functions. They get to act like they're taking these concerns seriously when um, actually they're just using it to feed this China threat narrative. And it's allowing them to sidestep the conversation we need to have about social media and tech companies and regulations um, in the U.S. And, and I think, you know, eventually what we'd like to see is, is international standards um, because all of these companies are operating internationally. Um, so that's, uh, you know, uh, I think like that's just one example of how this discourse functions and we see similar issues like across the board on every issue well and, and that's just uh, it toby this this also devoids and robert i'll get back to you yeah. it hides the real argument about power and money and the corporate and the role of multinationals and the people really behind all this and you know the chinese communist party what they're really trying to navigate here in the the sort of the world that's completely different you know 30 40 years <laughs> later from the opening up right and 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 so that's not even a part of this discussion right it it cuz it it allows it to debase it down to something that's about communism and just stuff that doesn't allow people to really think through this issue robert i really like the way you just framed the whole social media question and the platforms because i haven't heard it that way and you're right. We don't, we don't have to say that there's no problem with 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 TikTok. It, it's 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 just uh, it's just xenophobia, right? To say that we don't know that the problems are not unique to TikTok necessarily, and that you could handle a lot of the TikTok issues through reform of social media in general. And we know social media in general is set up for engagement to develop profits to get. Uh, huge advertising, and that that engagement has generated the threat to democracy in the MAGA movement. It's, it, it didn't create the MAGA movement. It, it, it uh, amplified it and made it more powerful. And they're all doing that. And perhaps there is a Chinese security piece to this. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but you address that directly. Come on. The, the Russians don't own a social media website, but they used our social media websites to try to uh, to influence two elections. We know that, just for example. Uh, so I think that's really good. What I want to, man, unless you had another one, I want to ask about Congressman Gallagher. We know him here in Wisconsin. He has a reputation that of, of some fair moderate because he's not MAGA, because he actually said honest things about the insurrection when it happened and things like that. Uh, and he doesn't come off even like the rest of our delegation. But nonetheless, he votes with them. And because of his military status and his bearing, he can be the perfect kind of foil for this new Cold War, right? And that's my sense. And yet a lot of Democrats want to say that he's a fair man, like Rokana saying that, that he doesn't think oh. Mike Gallagher would do that. Uh, you're outside of Wisconsin, though nearby, um, in our neighbor to the South. So what what is you what do you and you read, you know, you're deep on this issue. What is your analysis of Mike Gallagher as the front person for this? Yeah, I think um, he's being put forward and, you know, the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, um, has been uh, trying to spin this narrative, too, that uh, this is going to be uh, that this committee is going to be a forum for serious and sober discussion about policies. It's going to be bipartisan. It's oh, going God. to be responsible. Uh, Representative Gallagher is being put forth as someone um, who can act in a bipartisan way in this manner. 
Um, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not steeped in, in the, the history of, of Gallagher's uh, political career, but, you know, as you mentioned before, we have just seen in uh, this bizarre and absurd struggle to elect, actually elect a House Speaker in how the Republicans uh, handle that. I, we're, we're seeing how the Republican Party behaves. So without knowing anything about Representative Gallagher's political history, uh, he's part of this party. We can see the direction they're headed in. Um, and I think it should be clear based on that what we can expect to see um, from uh, this committee and, and Gallagher's leadership on it. And, and what's the risk of this committee, independent of Gallagher, Gallagher being the front for it, but not the whole thing, and it being bipartisan. We have a, lot, a huge number of Democrats voted for this, this committee. So that's the risk, Robert, right there. It's already got bipartisan sheen. In many ways, the deed has been done and this thing will go off the rails and it'll just be a series of stories of Democrats go, well, I thought they promised they wouldn't do this. It's like, really, did you watch the week before? How many votes did they have? Was this a this was a group that you actually believed was going to moderate and be bipartisan the same time the Senate was standing by a bridge, actual bipartisan, you know, whatever you want to call bipartisan. That's the closest thing to real bipartisanship, not this phony anti-China bipartisanship. I'm sorry. It's just it amazes me that these House folks <laughs> um just seem tone deaf to the world that we've been swimming in. It's just the recurring image for me when it comes to uh, Democrats holding out hope for responsible bipartisanship from the Republican Party on any issue, not just China, is, uh, you know, Lucy and the football yes. and Charlie Brown. And I feel like this is happening uh, again uh, and on an issue uh, that is so uh, volatile and has so much uh, dangerous reactionary uh, potential. Um, when we look at what Representative Gallagher has said about what he wants to accomplish with this committee, you know, for all this attempt to paint him as this responsible actor, um, he has talked about it in terms of, uh, I mean, the goal he has set out is that this is, go this is how we are going to win the new Cold War. We need to avoid falling into the trap of a, of a kind of new Cold War relationship. Yeah with the U.S. and China, like that is extremely dangerous. Um, and who declared a Cold War, Toby? Who wants a Cold War? Nobody declared that there was one. I never even heard a discussion of it until this week that we're in a Cold War with China. It's a, it's crazy. And, and NPR even is pushing it. And today, this morning, we're recording Thursday. They had a story in All Things Considered, the largest audience morning show in the country, uh, that basically talked about how China is developing friendlier relations with a lot of Asian neighbors, Australia and many others. And they they frame that entirely as a tactical move, basically, <laughs> to do Cold War, not as anything they might actually be doing. <laughs> it's, yeah, it is, uh, it's very strange to see that as some sort of sinister plot against the United States. <laughs> like, of course, Chinese leaders are worried about competition with the US, just like US leaders are here. But, um, you know, they're in Asia, they're, they're a rising economic power. Of course, they're going to have a growing economic relationships with other countries in, in, in that region. That's just to be expected and to sort of paint it in, in, this, in this sinister light. It's a very disturbing way to look at the, at the rest of the world, I think. I agree. Toby, we're really glad you took the time 
to come and join us today on short notice. Um, I anticipate we're going to have you on more. We're going to continue to watch this committee and you're going <laughs> to help us navigate this as progressives. And look, we have a responsibility here to hold our um, progressive elected officials accountable. I'm obviously, I mentioned uh, uh, Congresswoman Moore and Pocan were, were on the right side of this, but um, just we got to keep an attentive eye and also just with our neighbors and friends and because, you know, it's very clear that there's going to be efforts to try to, you know, get Democratic support for this kind of nonsense and this idea that we need a Cold War. Um, so we really appreciate you taking the and, time and, to come on. And let me just remind everyone, all the aspirations we have for structural reform in this country, um, they're on hold if we're in a new Cold War. They're gone. We had I'll we say not have substantial now. progress between 1948 and the mid-60s after it began to thaw a bit after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and the passing of Stalin from the scene. And we had a we had a much less aggressive Soviet Union, though our military establishment didn't admit that all through Reagan. It was not no longer an expansionary power. And uh, it, it was very much a status quo power, as they call it. So anyway, everything we believe in, fight for, it ain't happening if they're successful. And by the way, military spending out of control, it increases even further uh, dramatically if this happens. Thank you again, Toby. Thanks. Thanks, all. Yeah. Folks, we got to we gotta wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. That was a fantastic conversation. We need to be vigilant as progressives against this. Um, folks. I want to thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, makes this show happen every week. It's great to be in 2023 with you. Again, please watch our Supreme Court candidate forum, fill out our survey, get engaged, donate, and support our work in that election. Folks, we'll see you next week at the Battleground, Wisconsin.